Guys, welcome back to the Ensigns Podcast. I am Blaine. And I'm Sam. And I missed you. I know. I Not you, them. Just oh. so we're clear. <laughs> <laughs> You've seen me, yeah, yeah. I guess. Maybe yeah. too much. We are coming to you live in the past from the Ensign Studio because we are back recording new episodes right now. Like literally, not the second, but yes, before now and, and after now. So relative to when you hear this. <laughs> I'm like, gosh, my brain already... Do you feel like you have to make up for lost time? Like you've been gone and haven't been able to make our heads hurt like in real time? A little, yeah. So January, guys, uh, new Anson's episodes be coming out. We've got Irish photographers, American firearms instructors. Uh, us. Us, therapists, worldview teachers. Yeah, yeah. That's still us. <laughs> Two of the best people you know. That one's not us. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, Henry and Baxter. <laughs> <laughs> Did you hear the car? <laughs> <laughs> I can almost hear the metal wrapping around the tree of that car crash. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Henry and Baxter. <laughs> Bang! That's the sound of the airbag going off. Oh. But today, uh, we are hitting you again with one of the original episodes that we recorded for the Advent season, which continues to be one of my favorite parts of the liturgical year. One of the things that we share in this episode is uh, this amazing idea from Karl Barth that uh, the faith that we have right now is Advent faith because we anticipate the future coming of Jesus in terms of the past coming of Jesus. And he said they're related to each other as our dawn and sunrise. And so wonderful time to dive back in to the depths of Advent and joining in a longing that's fulfilled and yet expectant for the full return of Jesus. It's kind of like the American dream, right? It's like you, you spend your life working for your retirement. Golly, what a lot of shit, man. I would tell young Lori to slow down and allow the season to do its work. Don't say healthy, don't say happy. Don't say well, and don't say normal. You show me one person on the planet who's healthy, happy, normal, and well. Who is that person? Is there something good that can be gained quickly? I don't know. We are really in the Christmas season. We have a tree. We put lights on it. Everybody else has lights. We have neither of those things. Yeah, so you're behind is the message of this podcast. <laughs> the message to me. Yeah, we're setting this one in time. Um, a lot of other podcasts can really happen at any point, but we do exist in a time and a place. And this is a season that we really love and has gotten, I think, smeared with consumerism and politics and blah, blah, blah. But there's beauty in the liturgy and in the tradition. And it's been a tradition of our family to do Advent. Um, so much so that I would do it without thinking. 
And when someone would ask like, what is that? And why are you guys lighting those candles? And what are you reading? That I would be like, this isn't something everybody's doing. Yeah. I think part of the desire in doing an episode that won't exactly be evergreen is to go, for a lot of young guys, the season around Christmas can just be a stressful letdown. So much so that the themes that circulate in our culture around Christmas are all about disappointment, stress, recovery. That's what's happening. And I think if I evaluate the situation from my point of view, I think that the problem is that for my early life was I wanted Santa to bring me presents and that was what made Christmas great. And then you transition out of that. But without some instruction in Advent, you don't transition into anything. But it's, it's true that sort of Santa is soda and Advent is exceptional scotch. They're both enjoyable, but there is a maturity that you go through by which you rise from the lesser Christmas to the higher Christmas of really being able to enjoy it again. That's very Ron Swanson of you. It sort of assumes that anybody with a decent palate is going to enjoy a good scotch. Well, even if they got a bad palate, they have a decent mind for analogy. It's going to work. I think we're safe. The first thing that I wish we could do in introducing Advent is to watch the final trailer for Rogue One that was dubbed Hope or Rogue One Trailer 2 sometimes. It's kind of hard to find on YouTube nowadays, but I don't think fair use agreements would let us do it. But the reason that trailer is so awesome about framing Advent is it starts and there's these sort of high atmospheric notes and you have this dad character kneeling to go whatever I do I do to protect you say you understand and then an explosion and suddenly you see the stories in motion and she's in prison I hope you've seen Rogue One it's so good but then it's you know your father's key to the development of a super weapon and if the empire is this kind of power what do we have we have hope rebellions are built on hope and then it just goes into like this incredible you know, they have no idea we're coming, make 10 men feel like 100 kind of thing. This The rebellion, and then Sil Guerrero's lines of save the rebellion, save the dream. That trailer is a perfect, succinct expression of what Advent is. Because the first Sunday of Advent is simply hope. And it is the sort of banner rising in the middle of the world, in the middle of a rebellion that is underway, going. The Empire has a super weapon, and it happens to be, you can see it everywhere in the affliction of the human heart. We have this guerrilla band involved in a knockdown, drag-out fight for the restoration of the Earth culminating in Christ's coming, and that is what is happening. Yeah, so Advent is the four Sundays leading up to Christmas, and they each have a particular theme and a story and this journey you're meant to be going on. And it's more than just the candle version of like a daisy chain where you're counting down. There is a, there is a story, there is a narrative, there is a something that we love doing here of like trying to put ourselves back into the larger context 
Um, and I think as a culture that we're more drawn these days to liturgy and something that I've seen, there's a power to it. There's something of not needing to be inventing something for the first time. So if you're someone who does Advent, I think you're going to be nodding your head right now going like, yeah, this is awesome. Like, let's, let's do it. But this is also kind of like an intro for people that might not be familiar with it. And I would also encourage folks that aren't familiar and are a little bit uh, hesitant of things that are liturgical to, to give it a moment because what it is doing it is, is reestablishing our place in a story, renaming what it is that we're hoping for and what it is that this season is about. There's a great quote that I love by Chesterton about tradition. It goes, tradition means giving a vote to most obscure of all classes, our ancestors. It is the democracy of the dead. Tradition refuses to submit to the small and arrogant oligarchy of those who merely happen to be walking about. I love that quote because it is this, you exist in the tradition of Christianity as this greater group of people who have been hoping for Christ's arrival and are hoping for it again and Advent is a wonderful way to go into the season that is very different than the heavily scent of cinnamon and annoying little jingles and flashing lights that have infiltrated most public spaces these days. Yes. Liturgy, of course, just meaning public working functionally. What is the public expression of a something? And so... When we say liturgy, we're talking about this, this yearly performance of the story we're living in. And hopefully your year has rituals that remind you of the things that you love, that the spring mountain biking trip reminds you of the love of wilderness, that the fall party is a celebration of the summer and a reflection on sort of the joy of family and community life. And there is a performative nature to our schedules already. And we have this incredible resource to draw on in the yearly celebration and participation in everything awesome about the story we're living in, in the form of a liturgical calendar, which happens to be to start in Advent, which is such a cooler way of going. I just love Christmas not being the end of the year, but Christmas being the beginning, the four Sundays of Advent being the first four Sundays of the year. And it's going to go through the, the Annunciation, the birth of Jesus. It's going to go through the visit of the Magi, obviously into the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension, then on into Pentecost, and sort of forward we go every year. One of the things I wanted to try today was going, okay, the first Sunday of Advent is supposed to do a couple things, uh, but mostly you start the year by longing for the second coming of Jesus. And you sort of do that by looking back at the first coming of Jesus. There's this incredible line. Karl Barth wrote that unfulfilled and fulfilled promise are related to each other like dawn and sunrise. Both are promise and, in fact, the same promise. If anywhere at all, then it is precisely in the light of the coming of Christ that faith has become Advent faith, the expectation of future revelation. But faith knows for whom and for what it is waiting. It is fulfilled faith because it lays hold of a fulfilled promise. 
I love his. It's the same desire. Like the first light of dawn and the sun is the same event. And the coming of Christ and the incarnation reflect the same thing being the end of time and the restoration of all things. But by reflecting on the fact he's fulfilled the promise, it's the same promise that he'll fulfill all things. And it just gives us this sort of resonant, come Jesus. Right, because the the temptation that time can do is that it can turn Christmas into the, the scene of the the crash it's the away in the manger it's the little the little baby in the in this scene and that's kind of all it is it's this thing that happened and we kind of remember it and it was amazing and depending on what church or what tradition you might have there might be a lot of celebration about the fact that god became man something worth celebrating and sitting in but that becomes all past oriented it doesn't actually have implications for the present or hope for the future when it's just this this one scene kind of unfolding over and over and over again. And so, yeah, like the fact that it is meant to remind and be basically pointing towards the promise of the next promise to be fulfilled. I mean, that's what it's all about. Here it is explained in an early iteration of the Catechism. When the church celebrates the liturgy of Advent, It makes present this ancient expectancy of the Messiah. For by sharing in the long preparation for the Savior's first coming, the church renews its ardent desire for his second coming. By celebrating the precursor's birth and martyrdom, the church unites herself to his desire. It's one of my favorite lines. This is a way of uniting ourselves with the desire of Jesus, which is for the restoration of all things. And we do that by performing this reflection and participation in remembering what it was like for him to come and expecting that he'll come again. So I'm going to read you something. Actually, I'm excited that you get to hear this too, Sam, because you'll hear it again later when Mm. we do like a family thing. But as I was writing this week and thinking about what does it look like to really remember what the longing was for the coming of the Messiah in his first coming in the incarnation? And then what does it look like? Like, where are we when we are longing? And it came out of so many good things, listening and listening to the great hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, going, oh my gosh, let's remember in the first instance, what was happening when people were calling for Emmanuel, for God with us to come. Like, and let's go, where are we now exactly in time? And just going, uh, wow, we need to remember, if you, you're going to end up being one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Uh, But more likely, given age restrictions, you're one of the parents of those folks. And you are wanting the Messiah to come. And you've waited for the Messiah for a really, really long time, including 400 years of silence at the beginning of the New Testament. Uh, this is a reflection on what would it be like to be that person then? Where are we? So get into your zone of imagining some craziness. And let's walk through this. Picture the conquered world you occupy. 
If you're lucky, you live in a land the Greeks call Palestine for the Philistines, though it is more likely you live in ancient Iraq or late Greece. Your family is battered and stretched and cut off in the dim kingdoms of Persia, Syria, Jordan, and Turkey. You live at the end of 400 years of silence. True, there are itinerants, slapdash prophets, coming through with special access to God, but none of them is tested and confirmed since Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, whose final delivered promise hangs tired in the air. I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Elijah's not shown up. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi are so long dead, not even your grandmothers, 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 grandmother remembers them. You've seen Persia conquer the world, and then, from the West, the rumored Macedonian Alexander the Great, Aristotle's pupil, comes sweeping back through Gaza a hundred years post-Malachi. Fifty miles from Jerusalem, every man was executed and every child was sold a slave, and he drove on to Babylon, where his life gave out and his kingdom splintered. Then the Syrian Seleucids, then the Maccabees, the Jewish rebel warriors of Judea, arose and scoured the temple and ruled a hundred years before the coming of fabled Rome. Even now, the hills are pockmarked with radicals. You live in a world crowded with sorcery and spirits. There are sorcerers in every town to curse your enemies for a fee, magicians to tell you the future. In the temple, you might, at night, see the spirits of Aphrodite, now Venus and Apollo, slink over the landscape to slouch at the temple wall and suck at the worship there. And still, the ancient Baal, called Molech, and his wife Ishtar, interrupt the dark with sacrificial fires, burning as far as Carthage. In Judea, they whisper in the ear of the fey Jewish king Herod. There are angels and worshippers of angels. You cannot leave the city, you trip on a spirit. And in every town there's a person or two with a deadpan look. Try for their eye, and you'll see uncorrupted malice, looking out as though through a peephole. Some foul thing has yanked on their body like an oven mitt to grasp at the world, and there's not a thing to do. Foul spirits take their due, and there's nobody to pull rank on them. One other thing. That old dream of an independent nation is gone. And so is the meat of the dream, a dwelling place for God among us. It's every day vanishing. The last king of Judah is gone like a myth. Their names are incantations, Azar, Zadok, and Akim. Their descendants are thick-fingered construction workers whose mean country slang is so hard to understand they can't order coffee. I'm descended from David on my father's side. That's good for you, but the deck still needs building. The promises of God are out there, stubby and fallow. And the great I am, who crushed Egypt with one hand, whose voice is like the sea, who competes for creation with spear and drawn sword, 
Who knows? The last thing he said was he promised to come. Suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. And then us. Modern day. Good Lord, where to start? Well, Rome burned. And a hundred things happened after that. The Germans called this feeling Weltschmerz, world weariness. So many things have happened, it's hard to parse out what's what, but locally, it's like this. We find ourselves in the same cycle of isolation, the same betrayal at work, the picayune neighbor leaving a note to move your car, move your church, quiet down, the same marital fight. It's starting along the familiar track, but there's nothing to do about it, and inside you can feel, literally feel, your heart cracking on its original fault lines. Your alcoholic dad, depressed sibling, borderline mom, raging aunt, uncle, cousin, haughty vendor, blood-red road rager. The kid that didn't make it. The bright line of saints rising, worshipping, vanishing. The best friend who held on and held on and then let go. It's still true, everyone you know is a mist vanishing at dawn. We've got a hundred places calling for Jesus to become incarnate in our darkness. We are every one of us, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, standing before the imperial Babylonian king while he leans in and says, No God can save you from me. While we reply, he has and will. Good thing is, all the resources of heaven are open now, though it does tune the ear to all creation groaning. Good thing is, the dawn is already in the east, though it does aggravate our desire for so many folks to turn their faces, just a fraction to see it. The message of salvation has come down to us, passed hand to hand across millennia, like water coming from the bucket brigade. The last thing Jesus said was, there's no last thing this time. I'm sending my spirit to you. You can hear God, every one of you. You can walk with God, every one. You can join in the fight for creation, hand to hand, house to house. It is the most savage, knockdown fight between sworn enemies for a future which the one knows it will never know or see. It is for the last lingering moat of creation. Every last heart is a contest. As the triune God said through the prophets, I don't want anyone to die. If a sinning man turns from his ways, not one of the offenses he has committed will be remembered against him. He will live. As he said again through Peter, the patience of God is salvation. And though a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day, the Lord does not hem and haw with a promise. Understand, he's on his way. You live in a world where the enemy put the axe to the root of meaning itself a long time ago, propped up the self-life and the flesh to open the sluice gate for the darkness. The effect is you can be whatever and nothing means anything. Humans and spirits vie in the temple now to gobble adoration. Let everyone do what is right in their eyes. Basically, the same crooked heart is an affliction everywhere. This is our moment. Jesus came and initiated the eschaton. We are living in the end of the world, though what we call the last things are really the first things are putting to rights of God's universe so we can finally embark with decent footing 
on the destiny for which all creation was built. In the background, you can, if you lean in, hear the chorus rising fraction by fraction. The air is packed with witnesses while the darkness and light grow up together. Make no mistake in Advent. We are calling for Emmanuel. We are not asking for what is best in man. We are not asking for justice. We are not asking for a little relief. We are asking Jesus Christ to come, the one who is like a thief in the night, the master returning, the king on the journey, the heavens vanishing, as Peter said, with a final roar. Come like you did before, the rod of Jesse, dayspring, desire of the everlasting hills. Jesus, Savior of the nations, come. So good. Yeah, so that's Advent. Guys, we'll be back with the second half of this episode next week. So come back around as we flesh out thoughts and expectations and hope of Advent and the 